Today we are at the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine preparing for Good Friday, and actually by the time you hear this it will be Good Friday, but we are with Monsignor Morris to help us really break open this day and dive deep into everything that is happening. Monsignor, good to be with you as always. Adam, and you as well. Thank you. Uh, This is a day very uh, close to me spiritually. It was a day very much connected to uh, my early remembrances as a server especially, uh, and one of the days very much connected to my desire for priesthood because of the the somberness of the day, um, that issue of Good Friday, why is this a good day given all that goes on. It's just the whole sacred triddle for me is one of the primary reasons I became a priest. So thank you for letting me be with uh, our listeners today to talk about the beauty of Good Friday. It's funny that you mention being an altar server, drawing you in. I, I was speaking recently with Father Edgar and and Stan Matheny about how if you wanted to serve weddings and funerals, you know, that's where the money was, you had to serve for the other things when Mr. Maher would come asking, I need servers for this. And so by the time I was in sixth grade, he knew he could sign me up for Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil without objection. And it really was at that time that I got into that routine of attending the Mass of the Lord's Supper, the service of the Lord's Passion on Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil that to this day I bring forward. So uh, especially to all parents listening, let's start with an encouragement. Bring your children. Even if you didn't bring them last night to the Mass of the Lord's Supper, bring them today to the liturgies of Good Friday at your parish. And if I may add to that, I know one of the things we want to eventually discuss in this segment is what should people be doing, and that is precisely what they should be doing. You know, again, you and I are of an age, and I'm uh, older than you, so even more for my time, that people, things were closed on Good Friday, so you could easily participate. Of course, things were closed on Saturday and Sunday, even more so, so that was natural, but people would take off work. Uh, Bosses anticipated, especially for those who were more devout and more pious, that their members would have a day off, or it would be a half day, so that by noon... People were able to be in their churches for the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified and the Veneration of the Cross at 3 o'clock. That was common. Uh, It's hard now, obviously, because the world is so secular and it does actually disdain things of religion. But all the more reason that when you're looking at, you know, I need a vacation day, this might be a day that you would say, I'm going to take a vacation day. Not go on vacation, but actually expend that energy that you've saved up in having your vacation days to be able to be with your family and to be with your children. As you were saying, I lived at my parish from the practice on Wednesday for Holy Thursday and then the other Holy Thursday practice through Easter Sunday. I was able to bike back and forth, and my mom and dad both were very encouraging of that, and it just it was part of my life I, to, to not be immersed in this. So even as a practical note, not only bring your children, but make the sacrifices to have them present. They are long liturgies. They are. And you might need to, if you normally sit in front, you might need to sit in the back so you can get up and move around. But again, it's one of the things that we forget. People have brought kids to these liturgies again for centuries, and they may have run around or squirmed a little bit. I get it. I'm not a parent. You are. You know better than I the difficulty sometimes of corralling children. And I can appreciate that, but I think it'll be so it'll be so worth it. And the best way to help them become more and more comfortable is to experience this year after year. So that would I would just want to to echo that. Let's begin by talking about how we got here. Um, I think that's probably the very center of the day. Really, is Christ crucified on the cross, the Passion today. 
When we go to the Old Testament, which we will many times during the course of the Triduum, especially the Easter Vigil, we hear the whole of salvation history. One, one theme always sticks out, that, that God created us in communion with him in the garden, and then, thank you, my namesake, Adam messed it up. Adam and Eve messed it up, and they were expelled. Sin entered the world, and it was this constant back and forth of exile, return, exile, return. Moses comes along at a certain point. We get the Ten Commandments. We get the the book of Deuteronomy. We get the book of Leviticus. We get all of the Old Testament law of what we are to do to make a return to the Lord. Why was that not good enough? Why do we find ourselves with the incarnation and then the death of our Lord on a cross? Why, Why couldn't we just stick with the old pattern of we will do this in our Old Testament worship to make amends and come back to God. So I would I would begin by answering that question by going back to the sin of Adam and Eve, and it it it, it beautifully connects also with what we will pray tomorrow at the exalted O happy fault O necessary sin of Adam. The sin of Adam and Eve, their disobedience and their lack of trust in the Lord, their unwillingness to listen to God who conversed with them, sets in motion our continual struggle with sin. God then, in initiating covenant with them after the expulsion from the garden, uh, the covenant with Noah that the Lord will not ever again purge the earth of his people, and then the covenant, of course, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant throughout with the patriarchs, uh, the covenant obviously established in Moses, and of course that high watermark is the Passover. And so here we have this blood on the doorposts that protects. Remember, Moses begins that whole process of God letting his people go free from the slavery to sin uh, by eventually when he gets into, pardon me, this is after the fact, pardon me, when he gets into the desert uh, and, and, and receives the Ten Commandments, he also sprinkles blood on the people. So there's this whole reality, uh, and I'll, I'm going to dovetail in a minute from this, if you'll permit me, just a little bit to give, an, to give an insight into this, but there's this whole reality of the blood sacrifice and what that means. And of course, they already are familiar with the power of blood to protect. So God then initiates these various sacrifices with his, peoples that he, with his people that they're supposed to do. There are grain and cereal sacrifices. There are smaller animal sacrifices, depending on what they are. And of course, this is the dovetail a little bit, or the maybe prescending a little bit. The nature of sacrifice, and this is something that we often forget, the nature of sacrifice commits the one who receives the sacrifice as much as it does the one who makes the sacrifice. That's something we forget. Sacrifice isn't just... Um, if you will, an offering on the part of the one who does the sacrificing, uh, either out of humility, out of deference, out of appeasement, whatever motivations he may have for offering the sacrifice, the greater his sacrifice, the one who then receives it is committing himself to that individual. So you can see in the mind of even the pagans where a human sacrifice, a blood human sacrifice, would be the greatest thing returned to God. So what does God ask Abraham to do as a sign of his love and his sign of his obedience? Sacrifice your only begotten son, Isaac. Uh, it's unthinkable, although Abraham is our father in faith, beautifully so. So God, again, there, he stays the hand of Abraham. He doesn't ask Abraham to make that sacrifice. And unlike all of the pagans who surrounded the ancient Israelites, uh, who did have 
uh, blood sacrifices. God never asked his people, never demanded from them that they would do that. Instead, he took in its place of this perfect blood sacrifice, that is, this blood from another human being, he took the rams and bullocks. Again, the more expansive it was, the greater the commitment. Of course, Passover again, God finally listening to his people and setting them free. But there was always going to need a blood sacrifice that would actually fulfill what is absent, the church teaches us in the Old Testament dispensation, is that while God was willing and pleased to accept those sacrifices as an outward expression of that interior desire upon of his people to be in relationship with him, they lacked the ability to affect that change that was needed. So yes, they did these things, but in some senses, that's all they were, objective things that were done. They didn't always necessarily then have the ability to change interiorly. And therein lies the primary difference between the old dispensation and the new. When we offer the sacrifice of our Lord, not only are we doing that which God has commanded us to do objectively, even if we're not in the proper frame of mind interiorly, what we are offering allows that to happen. We are transformed whether we, in a sense, want to be or not. Of course, the degree of transformation does, in part, rely upon our ability to participate with that. So the church, so the question that you started a long time ago, and thank you for your patience with me, how did we get here? It is because the sin of Adam and Eve set in motion God's desire to repair the damage that they did. He has these beautiful ways of doing it. Again, the, the pre-covenantal history, of course, the patriarchs, again, uh, Moses, the judges, the kings, the prophets, that whole beautiful tradition, and all that the Old Testament reveals to us of, as you describe accurately, this back and forth, back and forth, wandering in the desert for 40 years, and then getting the, I mean, just over and over, it's like, when are you going to get it together? Now, the same could be asked of us. Here we are 2,000 plus years after this event that literally changed the world, the incarnation first, but this is a part of the full Paschal mystery. Why haven't we gotten it together? And the question is because we still suffer from the effects of original sin. The difference, however, is that we now have a sacrifice that allows us to get it together in a way that these other sacrifices did not. Now, final thought, and then I'll let you get a word in here edgewise since this is your show. The fact that the question could be asked, well, why would not God give us a sacrifice that would do that? Because he knew that it would require he himself coming to us in order for us to receive that sacrifice. So that's precisely what he's done. We would say, well, why didn't God give that to them? It's an unfolding. It took time for that to unfold. But now we do. God did give us something. He's given us himself, making it possible for us to give back to him this perfect sacrifice that gives him praise, but also transforms us as well. I think back to the early years of my marriage and not wanting to have a damaged relationship with my wife. And so rookie marriage mistake, I was holding on to every little annoyance and not charitably saying to my wife, could we talk about this? Could we address this? And what happens? It builds up, it builds up, and eventually I unleash in a torrent of just brutal words, unfortunately. And I hurt her feelings. And in and, and looking back on it, I realized that the fault certainly 
looking back at it, there's no doubt about it. It was my fault and it could have been avoided, but I have now damaged the relationship. So also being a rookie in marriage, what do I try to do? Well, try to make her favorite dinner, try to say, let's go for a walk because I know she values time spent outside together, going for walks or hikes or things like that. And, you know, wondering why that wasn't fixing things again rookie marriage mistake um, but thinking that i could perform these actions to fix the damage that i had unleashed with very cutting words and while she appreciated the dinner she appreciated the walk it didn't repair the pain it, it, it partially made up for it but it's not going to completely do it that's similar to where we find ourselves, that no matter what we are offering to the Lord, there's nothing that Adam Wright or even Monsignor Morris or anyone listening today could offer of their own accord, on their own, whether it be rams, goats, lambs, even Cain and Abel, going back to their sacrifices, that would completely repair the division caused by sin in the world. And so at this point, the one who can repair that has to step in, and that's where we find ourselves with the incarnation and God becoming man. And therein lies the profound mercy of God, because it was always going to be God's initiative in the first place to repair the damage that we created, precisely because, as you say, there is nothing we could have done to do that. But then in wisdom, he accomplishes that by sending us his Son, uh, as the uh, medieval theologians are often wont to express it, there's a fittingness to that. Could God have accomplished this in other ways? And the answer, of course, he could, because he's God. What those ways are, I don't know, because of what we've had revealed to us, and that is through the incarnation. But there's a fittingness to the beauty of that, because then what's also revealed? So not only does not only then does God repair the damage by sending us His Son. That then obviously begins the unfolding of what will be culminated, culminating here today on the cross. There also is the revelation that the creation that caused this division in the first place is also capable of being the instrument by which it is all healed and repaired. So we damage. So this is why, again, in the, that, that typology that was very prominent in the early life of the church, our Lord is the new Adam in stark contrast to the old Adam. Both of them in the flesh, one the God-man, the other one the created one, one disobedient, the other obedient, but it in the flesh. And again, in this day and age that, interesting enough, seems not interesting enough, but maybe counterintuitively devalues the flesh, either through abortion or the licentiousness with which we treat our bodies, this reaffirms the dignity of the human person. Because now we are means, we're not only means by which sin entered the world, were also the means by which that obliteration of sin actually happens. And so again, you, so we spend this particular day by leaning into all of the implications of that. And we, we in a sense of all, you know, as we're beginning this conversation, we're touching on in some ways the, uh, the, the beautiful aspects of this. There are also some hard things that we have to kind of reflect on as well, because the Lord is on that cross because of us, and we have to take a... a uh, a very serious, not just a little bit of ownership of my small part. No, brothers, sisters, all of our parts are very large. Every stripe that's physically on him is intensified by the weight of all of the sins, past, present, and future. And 
we have to remember that that you know it, it's so easy to perhaps gloss over this and look at the state of the world and the unrest, the turmoil, the war, the poverty, the famine, the effects of sin run rampant in our world today, and to say, well, of course God would want to repair that, and so he would do so great of a gesture as to offer himself to repair it. But let's put the blinders on for a moment. Even if it was just me, he would still do this. And so the times in my life that I have committed mortal sins, those are what sent him to the cross. You know, not to diminish yours or anyone else's, but we we have to think of it that way that, you know, God would do this even if I was the only human on the earth in all of humanity. He would go this far to bring me back. And again, I'm going to double down on that a little bit because it isn't just a question if you are the only one. It's precisely because of you that he did this. It's not just... It isn't, again, in a sense, God doesn't deal in macro. He's capable of, but he doesn't. I mean, again, look how all this unfolds. Here we are some 2,000 years past these profound historical events that at this moment, especially Good Friday, what's going to happen is he's going to be abandoned and betrayed and denied. And this theoretically, from an outsider's point of view, should be the end of the story. And in a sense, it, it, it ends almost as quickly as it began in obscurity and in silence. And now in this this just you know ignominious death that he endures. But he does all of this for me. Every single one. Again, only God is able to have that type of personal relationship with everybody spanning across time and space. But it's precisely because of you. Yes, you can say, well, someone else's sins are more egregious than mine. And maybe objectively, that might be true, that the sins for which they are guilty are more serious than your sins. But your sins are there nonetheless. That doesn't at all diminish how the Lord took all of that on himself for you. As we broadcast, it's about seven in the morning, sometime between seven and eight a.m. And one of the joys of this day, or one of the beautiful aspects of this day, is this is a day in the life of the church that we actually do have a fairly good timeline of what happened at what time on our Lord's journey of the Passion, the Way of the Cross. And so we're getting ready for the day, and and traditionally we would have the service of the Lord's Passion or or that liturgy uh, in the old form, the Mass of the Mm Pre-Sanctified, at noon, correct? Between the hours of noon and three is the recommendation. And and that falls within that timeline, that at about noon he was hung on the cross at three o'clock, Jesus died on the cross. Correct. And, and so that's a wonderful framework we get for today to orient ourselves in prayer throughout the day. We fast on Good Friday. Yes. And we abstain from meat, of course, on Good Friday. What are some of the other things we should be looking at as, if, if we haven't planned out our day yet, other than attending the liturgy? What should we be thinking about today? I think some very practical things for people that would be very helpful in intensifying this day is uh, certainly no television, no radio, no music, no computer. It is a day to sit and read, maybe to read something on the passion or something of a spiritual nature. Certainly nothing that would detract from uh, what it is that's being celebrated. Create a, a silence in your home. Pray the divine office. Pray, uh, you know, morning prayer. Pray matins. Here at the oratory, we'll have the opportunity to do the tenebrae. We've done it now. This will be our third year of singing tenebrae, which is um, 
uh, matins and lauds for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of the Sacred Triduum. It's a rather extensive prayer. We do it Wednesday evening, Thursday evening, Friday evening, anticipating the days beforehand. Uh, again, in addition to the fasting you're doing, it's a day to, to so you're fasting from social communication. Uh, and then do come to church early, you know, oftentimes in preparation for the uh, Good Friday services, the altar of repose has been kind of disassembled, and our Lord has been moved to a, a more appropriate place of reservation now in preparation for the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified. Even still, come to church early and sit in silence. Uh, pray the Stations of the Cross on that day in church, maybe either prior to the service or post. I know a great many parishes, and we'll be doing the same, will have hours of confession. Uh, don't wait until Good Friday to go to confession. Um, hopefully you have already been prior, but it might be appropriate to go yet again on that day. Now, again, some of these things can't always be done, and you know, family dynamics may necessitate a little bit of a change here or there, but at least to consciously try to let this day be different than everything. I mean, in a sense, even different from Holy Thursday and Holy Saturday, as beautiful as those days are. Because as you say, we know historically what transpires on this day. And, you know, as Scripture is going to tell us, there is a, a darkness that comes upon the world. We're still, we, we still need to grapple with that darkness that overshadows the world. And again, our contribution to that uh, and what that looks like. And, and again, the silence of it which is so central throughout the whole unfolding of the economy of salvation from the moment of creation to that very moment now, is a very valuable tool as well. I think of a good friend of ours who works in law enforcement, just one example among many of people that will not be able to take the day off. Right. There, are, there are those that do have to work today. And you know, we think about setting these goals. These are very good goals you've just outlined, and we should aspire to as many of them as we can. Uh, but if you're not, perhaps start here. Set an alarm on your phone for 2.55 so that at 3 p.m., whatever you're doing, you can stop and pray. If, if nothing else, that should be the the bare minimum. Um, but again, to, to aim high, if, if you just cannot handle silence throughout the day instead of listening to music, stay tuned to Covenant Network. We All of our programming today is geared towards keeping our focus on the passion that we celebrate today, but I, I think it's and there, good. set and, lofty goals. And but then there's also practical goals. Again, if you can't if you can't deal with the science, there's sacred oratory that um, you can listen to. Um, there are uh, beautiful movies that can be watched on Good Friday that would help you enter into it. Again, I'm thinking families that have little kids, where you know that type of complete fasting from social media would be next to impossible. Just because of the greater chaos it would create in the house, wouldn't actually allow what you're trying to achieve at all. And again, for those who work, you have the rosary. You can play. You can pray the stations in your car. There are apps. I mean, with all of the technology we have at our fingertips, if we can't physically be there because of legitimate commitments that impede us, there are still ways that we can take part. But today, you have to be conscious of them. You're going to have to work maybe a little bit harder than you would have in the past. When we arrive at church today, we will notice some things are different. 
if perhaps we were not able to go to the Mass of the Lord's Supper last evening or, or we went with the procession to an altar of repose and then go into the main body of the church, we'll notice that the altar is bare. It, it has been stripped. We will notice that in many of our churches for the last two weeks, the statues have been veiled, and especially on Good Friday, even the crucifix, the cross, is veiled in the church uh, Living in this year of the pandemic, the holy water stoops have been empty, but but had it not been a pandemic, they would have been emptied in advance of Good Friday. That's a very stark contrast to what we're used to. Why is this? What is the goal of covering all of this up or taking these things away? Well, it provides an opportunity for us to, I always use the phrase, lean in to the realities that are being celebrated. So the Passion Tide experience, which is the term in the extraordinary form. In the ordinary form, it's the fifth Sunday of Lent. In covering the statues, for example, begins this process. And again, uh, as, you, as we were talking about the time it takes, you can't—the human person simply isn't capable of making the type of kind of changes on a dime that what we're contemplating requires. Leaning into and contemplating the fact that God willingly submits uh, to this heinous death takes time. And that he does it as the manifestation of his love for us, the love of the Father and the Spirit as well, takes time to wrap your mind around this. I don't care how often you contemplate it. So it literally hits me every time I go to confession. So this isn't like, oh, I'm a priest and I've been doing this my whole life and it makes perfect sense to me. It makes sense to me, yes, as an intellectual construct. It's when I'm standing in the confessional, or I'm sitting, kneeling in confession, and I'm crying over my sins, and I'm thinking, this is going to be the time God doesn't love me. And then I peer upon the cross. I'm like, okay, I got to go back again and remember and contemplate the depth of this love. So the church says to us liturgically, because Thomas, St. Thomas reminds us that the rituals we enter into, he does this both through looking at sacraments and also looking at the liturgy, that these things of nature, bread, wine, our own person, sights, smells, all the things that we use, they, God gives them to us in order to facilitate that relationship that we have with him. Because we are creatures, and we are limited, and therefore we need these realities, these created things, to assist us in reaching these this uncreated reality, which is God himself. The church says, okay, that's very true, but I'm going to take those away from you, not as a punishment, but to really force you on your own to stand there and and contemplate these things. By the time we come to church today, everything will be gone. So the altar isn't stripped. Everything in the altar that, in a sense, is not actually affixed to the ground, it is encouraged that it be removed. Plants and lecterns and chairs and candlesticks. Of course, there haven't been flowers in a while, but any any type of adornment and any of the practical things. And again, I, I that's why I encourage people to come early so you can get a sense of that somberness of this absence created by literally nothing to feast your eyes on except for that emptiness, which you should actually feel because it is a, a time of sadness and sorrow. I remember my days working in the parish that I would have every year at least a handful of people make comments, I don't like this. This is jarring. This is unsettling. This It really makes me uncomfortable that the church is empty like this. And, and I would just turn to them and say, good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you should feel unsettled and unnerved by this. But you need to go a step further and realize that 
The reason why you are unsettled and unnerved by this is because you created this. You brought this about. And in some ways, I mean, we, we talk about the veiling of the statues as removing the consolations that we, you know, it's so easy to turn, oh, I'm having a rough time, I'm going to turn to the statue of my patron saint that might be in the church and whatnot. But the stripping of the altar is very much a different thing, going back to taking everything away that's pretty much not nailed down to the floor, that we, we know there are four symbols of Christ present in the Mass, one of which is the altar. And so when we pray the Stations of the Cross, we know that our Lord is stripped. And in the same way, we're actually doing this to the church itself. So we're taking away all of the dignity, much in a way that Christ's dignity was taken away. Exactly. There is a Station of the Cross that speaks about the Lord standing naked. Uh, And again, there also is the image of the tabernacle, which if it is still blessed to be in the center of your church— the tabernacle doors are open, and the tabernacle is empty. God is gone. Now, he isn't gone, obviously. We know that because of who he is and the gifts of himself that he's given to us. But again, what we're doing here is, is this, this, this is not a, um, this is not a um, reenactment, if you will, like Gettysburg, where we get to stand and watch these, watch kind of a passion play unfold uh, only as objective bystanders. No, the church, again, is saying very much so, you, you're you very much in this story because this story is about you. And one of the things that we have to, I don't want to rush too quickly through this, but we have to remember the reason why we want to be here is because we all want to be there on Easter Sunday morning. We all want the glories of the resurrection, and we all want to be active participations in that play. Well, brothers and sisters, if you want that, then you also need to be here as well. They go hand in hand. And this is the this really is, if you want to, I don't want to describe it as in this necessarily these pedestrian terms, but it is the price of admission. The price paid for our ransom was the blood of the Lord. If you want the freedom and joy are enjoyed because of the cross of the resurrection, then you have to enter into the crucifixion. We say on Roadmap to Heaven, the route includes the way of the cross. There's no way around it. You know, I think of a time traveling that we encountered construction on the highway, and and I looked at every alternate route on my map, on my GPS. There was no way around it. If we wanted to get to our destination, we had to go through the thick of it in a very spiritual way and our lives in a very real way. That's what Good Friday is all about. We There is no going around this, which brings up kind of an interesting conundrum that I, I've always wondered about. We talk about the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, that at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, at every Mass offered throughout the year, we are offering a bloodless representation of the Sacrifice of Calvary. And what is Good Friday all about? The Sacrifice of Calvary. And yet today is the one day that in our Roman Catholicism, we do not have the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Why is this? So if you will permit me to begin this reflection with a quote, uh, this is a great series of liturgical year from Abbot uh, um, Garanger, uh, a Benedictine monk. Uh, this is from Passion Tide. Uh, it says the following, So vividly is the Church impressed with the remembrance of the great sacrifice offered today on Calvary that she refrains from renewing on her altars the immolation of the divine victim. She contents herself with partaking 
of the sacred mystery by communion. So, the short answer to that question is, with these insights from the abbot, is the church is impressed, as he says, is overwhelmed, I would also add, with focusing on what happened on Calvary, that she denies herself, refrains from renewing that on the altar, which is what happens at every Mass. Every Mass is a renewal of the sacrifice, but the language of Trent is more specific, a re-hyphened presentation. We're not reenacting, we're not duplicating or improving, we are bringing ritualistically present that which has already happened, it isn't bound by time and space. So he uses the word renewal here on her altars, that immolation, that that complete consumption of the sacrifice. But then, as he also beautifully points out, she contents herself with partaking of the sacred mystery by communion. So we're still not denied, if you will, the sacramental entrance into the mystery of the sacrifice, because there is the opportunity to receive Holy Communion. And on a day, of of all of the days of the year, what we remember today, this would be the day to say, Adam, you deserve nothing. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. You deserve nothing, and yet, and that's very true. And yet, what does our Lord do? He still offers himself to me in Holy Communion on this day. There is never a day where the Lord does not actually give himself to us, as you say. Every day is a day where we're undeserved of the gifts that are given, whether it be the sacramental life of the church or the actual graces God gives us throughout a day. Today especially makes very clear how unworthy I am. I'll own my own statements, how unworthy I am. And yet God, in one sense, affirms that by getting on the cross, you are. But this is how much I love you, even in your unworthiness, that I will always give myself to you, which is precisely what he does in Holy Communion. And again, there is that, that, that beautiful tradition that the Church, in, in one sense, imposes upon everyone, although this is a day where we receive Holy Communion, but there's that great tradition of people refraining from Holy Communion in order to intensify the next time they go to Holy Communion. So people would willingly, not so much now, because of the frequent, um, or the exhortation to frequent communion, but in the past, even when people were able to go, meaning they were in a state of grace and were free to receive, may have chosen not to go as a way of increasing in their lives spiritually, their love and their ardor for the Most Holy Eucharist. And so what does the Church tell us today? Well, you, you, the, the sacrifice is so significant in your life Everyone is going to refrain from the sacrifice in order to enter more deeply into the sacrifice, how all of this comes about. What happened at Last Supper yesterday on Holy Thursday, the Lord says, this is my body and this is my blood, and then that's precisely what he's doing today. He's giving his body and his blood that we might have new life, enter into a new covenant. And this takes us right back to where we started. Why today? What? How did we get here? There was damage to the relationship. We could not repair it. We don't deserve what's being offered. And yet our Lord, in his love for us, as we heard just a few weeks ago in the Sunday readings in the ordinary form, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. We don't deserve it, but that's the beauty of this day, is that God loves us so much that this day still happens. Now, I'd like to talk 
about divine mercy because we begin the novena of divine mercy today. But before we get to that, I think there's one other important point we need to bring up. It's so easy to talk about the omnipotence of God and how God is all-powerful, but we come back to the passion. This is not a pleasant experience for our Lord, who is both God and man. So when he is beaten, it hurts. When he is nailed to the cross, it hurts. When he is pulling himself up to breathe, it hurts. When he is dehydrated, he feels those effects. One of the things that's always been a little difficult for me to process, if I'm honest, is the psalm that we use in the ordinary form on Good Friday. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, if if Jesus is God, how could he be abandoned by God? What's going on in those words? Well, you know how that psalm ends, though, don't you? So that's the key. Everyone only hears the first verses of those psalms. That psalm ends with a rather clear affirmation of trust and confidence in the Lord. So Scripture tells us, he says, you know, uh, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? They hear him crying out. See, he's crying out. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't have trust. Um, he's he, what, or what the words on the lips of our Lord are a psalm that expresses the severity of what it is that he's enduring but then culminates also, as it, as it has been for him throughout all of this, his great profound obedience to the work of the Father. And everyone gathered around him should know this. At least the, the, the Jews gathered around him should know this because these are not words he's making up on the spot. This goes back to a psalm of David, Psalm 22, and so they should know the end of this as well. Um, but it's important for us to remember that he does endure all of these things, and that they're not pleasant. You know, um, sometimes I think our crucifixes in the church are too nice, that they, they don't adequately express. They don't. There's a great little book, you may have seen it, called A Doctor at Calvary, who actually, based on both his studies of what would have happened historically at the time in terms of both the Lord's scourging, the crowning of thorns, what would have been used, and then the actual act of crucifixion itself— and looking at the Shroud of Torin, which gives us an insight into the wounds themselves as well. And I was privileged to see the Shroud in person in 2000. That uh, it's a, a kind of a forensic analysis of what the Lord endures, and it's, it's beyond the pale. No one person should have been able to sustain all of this damage to his person that the Lord actually does. And we know that he does sustain it. And he does endure it for the sole purpose of setting us free. And so, again, we empty and rob the mystery of its content if we minimize the pain and suffering. Well, he's God, and therefore, you know, he can handle it. Uh, No. Yes, he is God. And yes, he does handle it. But he chooses in that moment to literally be what we would have done. If we had to endure these things, we would be experiencing the same things he experienced. He didn't presuppose, as Paul reminds us, his divinity. He didn't call upon that when he was taunted in the cross. Why doesn't he send down angels to deliver him? He can. He could. That's not the will of the Father. So it isn't the point that because he doesn't do these things, it somehow diminishes the power that he has as God. It's always the Lord as the Son, obedient to the will and the work of the Father. We hear this beautifully expressed in the Christus Factus. Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Mm -hmm. 
because of this God greatly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every other name. Let's fast forward now nine days to Divine Mercy Sunday, a wonderful gift in the church. We pray the chaplet every day on our airwaves, and I try to pray every day as best as I'm able. Something very curious. Eternal Father, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in atonement for our sins and those of the whole world, or in atonement for my sins and and those of the whole world. Who am I to offer this? Essentially saying, I'm offering you the sacrifice on the cross. Who am I to do that, Monsignor? And and how can I even do that? I mean, isn't Christ the one offering the sacrifice? I wonder if we could unpack this a little bit, because there are some wonderful things expressed in this prayer that we need to take note of. There are. The prayer also says we at some point. So it's really, the, the prayer is a reflection of the reality that the only sacrifice that we can offer to God is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in atonement for my sins and the sins of the whole world. And so when we make that statement in that prayer that I'm offering you, what we're expressing concretely is that I am participating in this perfect sacrifice which is being offered to you. It's not anything you're doing or I'm doing. Let's be very clear about that. I, I, I have nothing to offer to God, which is why God actually gave us this sacrifice in the first place, so that we would have something fitting and proper and sufficient to offer back to him. What we are saying when we pray that prayer is that first we are doing that, so we're doing what we were commanded to do. Whenever two or three gather in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And we're also committing ourselves, I think the prayer, to as St. Paul also enjoins us to make up for that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. We are committing ourselves to also make sacrifice and to make of our lives sacrifice. So we were talking about the mystery of the Lord's cross, that it is part of the road map. It is on the route, if you will. Actually, it, it is the route. It isn't on it. It is it. If you want to get to heaven, this is the road that you must travel. You cannot get off this road and get to heaven. You can get off the road, but then you're not getting to heaven. There is no way to get to the final destination unless it involves all along the road, too. Not just, hey, I've had one or two big crosses. I'm okay now. Uh, No, my friend, because actually the more successful you are in carrying the crosses, the more crosses and the larger they actually become. This is how the Lord works, because then you start carrying them not just for yourself, but as we say in the prayer, for my sins and the sins of the whole world. You're making reparation for the whole world. What does Our Lady tell us to do the first? We're making reparation for the whole world. So it's not just you. No one ever just gets to heaven. You're going to get there with and by and through other people as well. So what's happening in those tiny phrases right there is this great theological articulation, re-articulation, triumphant expression of the efficacy of the sacrifice of the Holy Mass, our participation in that, our bringing ourselves and all of our sufferings and willingly embracing the cross of our Lord. If we go backwards in our calendar year, Just a few short months ago, we celebrated the Nativity of the Lord, the Incarnation. And especially on Epiphany, we think about the gifts that the three kings bring and and what gifts would we bring. And I remember being a kindergartner. We had our little Christmas pageant, and one of the things we all recited, it was so cute. My mother still has the VHS tape. 
We all said together, what can I bring him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. What can I bring him? I can bring him my heart. And I think to summarize everything we've talked about today, one of the key points is in that bringing our heart, what we're really bringing is a knowledge of of where we stand and where we are, that out of an ardent love for the Lord, a desire to be with the Lord. We say, Lord, I'm going to bring you the very best that I am. But we're also going to recognize that as good as that may or may not be, it will never be enough. And so I am going to bring you my heart and say, Lord, it's not enough, but I am going to receive that gift which you offer me that is enough. Uh, Father Wade Meniz has recently said on the show that humility is knowing our place and occupying it. That, that that is what humility is. I think we fight this sentiment, especially in our culture today. I don't know if it's unique to our American culture or just the times we live in of entitlement. And, and I know that's something that I fight quite often. Well, of course, I deserve to go out to a nice restaurant. I've worked hard this week. Of course, I deserve to indulge in this. I, I've suffered through some trials. Of course, you know, why did that person get the request off granted on that day at work, but I didn't get the request off granted? You know, I've been working very hard. Pick your example. I think we all suffer from this a bit. The reality is, no, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Embrace the suffering and accept that gift that's offered on this Good Friday, because that gift is the only gift that will be acceptable to the Father. I'm not really sure I would add anything to that. I think it's a beautiful expression. I would say because of the entitlement of this age, and regardless of how old you are, all of us have become uh, infected by that. The beauty of this day is it provides an opportunity to, to try to get ourselves out of that, not wean ourselves away. Because one of the things that we'll need to bear in mind as we move into the Easter season is the cross doesn't disappear. I mean, so what happens in the early life of the church? He's persecuted. You know, and I love this during the Christmas season. The first feast we celebrate the day after Christmas is the Feast of St. Stephen, the proto-martyr. So the church says, you, you never get to turn anywhere and not confront the cross. So let's just be clear. So you've getting rid of all your Lenten disciplines are done. Everybody's going to start putting back weight on and going back to coffee or whatever they gave up. Chocolate's going to be stuffed down our faces and we're going to be eating and eating and eating. Okay, maybe so. That you know, No one's going to begrudge anybody a, a few days of enjoying the, the beauty of the Easter season. Of course, this always culminates with the change of weather and seasons and things like that. So lots of good reasons for rejoicing. But the cross is still there. It's not as if, hey, I've gotten through the hard part. Now I get to, again, I've done all this heavy lifting now. I deserve the rewards of the Easter season. You don't deserve any of this. You'll ne- you could live a thousand lifetimes and never deserve what it is that you're being given. So even as you enter into this, so this day especially says, just realize this will always be a part of your relationship with me. And actually, the more comfortable we can become with the mystery of the cross, the freer we actually can be. And this is the beauty of the cross. The more joy we'll actually find in the world. Because the thing about humility is if we stay in our lanes, it simplifies our lives. Our lives aren't complicated. Then I can just do the things that God asked me to do. How great is that? Anyway. It is. I mean, that's something I found over the last several years in particular, focusing on every good you know, let's go back to, the, I believe it's the words of Job, 
The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord that every good gift I've received is not anything that I've merited and every hardship I've endured is just a hardship that I'm invited to endure. And so when I'm disappointed that, oh, perhaps I didn't get that thing which I wanted so much or that opportunity, whatever it may be, fill in the blank, that it's okay. Because if nothing else, I've been given this day and I've been given the hope of heaven. And it's make it's made it so much easier to receive gifts and also just to let go and keep focus in life. Monsignor, I'd like to thank you for taking the time with us today to help us set our focus as we continue to enter into the second day of the Triduum. I wonder if we could close with a prayer to help keep our sights on the horizon today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And gracious and merciful Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your Son and the mystery of his cross. By an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we pray for the strength to configure ourselves to that very cross, knowing and in great confidence that as we die with Christ, so too we might live with him. Draw near to us now and hear this prayer and all of our prayers, and grant what we've asked according to your holy will, through Christ our Lord. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. We'd like to thank you for listening at the beginning of this Good Friday morning. Monsignor Morris, once again, thank you for being with us. You're listening to Covenant Network. We will continue our Good Friday programming after this short break.